0: Amity Podcast. My name is Tyler, and I work here at Cathedral of the Rockies with Pastor Ben Kramer. Today, Pastor Ben looks at the passage in Luke in which the resurrected Jesus interacts with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. This story culminates with what this series has been all about, with Jesus at the table. It is at the table with Jesus that the scriptures are revealed to point to Jesus, and that this is what everything was culminating to is Jesus himself. And that's what happens with the two disciples as Jesus breaks the bread with them. Their eyes are opened and Jesus and who he is in the scriptures is revealed. And it is from this passage that Pastor Ben will then try and help us think about what might Jesus be revealing to us when we sit at the table with him and his people. And just as a reminder, you can always check out our church, Cathedral of the Rockies, on our website, and on our social media platforms there you can see what is going on in the life of our church and even connect with us online links are in the show notes where you can check us out and with that enjoy today's sermon
1: At Luke chapter 24, 13 through 35. Again, I want to remind you of the question we're thinking about today. Um, what expectations do you have of your relationship with Jesus? What expectations do you have of the future? What expectations do you have in your relationships with other people? Because I'm sure we don't you don't have to live much life to know how damaging expectations can be on a relationship, right? If you have misplaced expectations they can be quite harmful to whatever relationship that you're in, whatever relationship you value. Um, <clears throat> when you walk into a restaurant, what expectations do you have? Food, service, right? Um, when, you, when, you go, when you travel on an airplane, when you go into an airport, what expectations do you have? Get through that security line as quickly as possible, right? right? When you walk into Target or Walmart or any grocery store, what expectations do you have? Maybe food on the shelves, right? Prompt service, maybe. But you can tell by the endless amounts of surveys online that people have a whole host of different expectations whenever they go to certain places, and as a pastor, I have to tell you, I, I've heard numerous expectations of what service should be like as well from good, faithful church people, right? Um, I've, I've heard expectations over certain kinds of music or lighting or even the paint color on the walls, the kind of preaching that I do, the, the way that this, the podium is set up. People have certain expectations when... <laughs> They enter into church as well. Church is not free from our expectations. But one of the convicting things to me is that no matter where we fall politically, theologically, in America, we are shaped by this thing called consumerism, right? We are shaped and programmed to be consumers from the time we are little, right? All the advertisements can tell you that. So when we enter into worship, that's part, I think that's one of the major things that we have to unwire, is that we're not here primarily to have just our expectations met. But what makes church and discipleship and following Jesus hard is that we have to allow our expectations to be challenged. And I don't know if you know this, but Americans love to be told what to do. We love it, right? That flag that with the with the rattlesnake on it, it says, "Please tell me what to do." No, it says, "Don't tread on me," right? We we Americans are kind of hardwired to resist being told what to do in any way, right? And it comes and clashes when we disciples we want to come to Jesus' feet and say, "What? Tell us what to do," right? And I as a pastor, I want to come into this place and that's my primary desire in worship. So instead of saying expectations in worship, what if we framed it as what's our primary desire? That's why I asked you, what needs do you want met? Because I want to be challenged and shaped and transformed by Jesus. (laughs) So when you enter this place and you find yourself thinking, oh, that's not my favorite song, I'm like, well, maybe it's not Pastor Ben's favorite song either. (laughs) But maybe we're looking at music because I know a guy who works here who puts blood, sweat, and tears into bringing music every Sunday for us. His name's Alex. And do you know, he and I both approach music as saying, this is an avenue, not, not whether it's my genre or what I like about it or if I like the lyrics so much. This is an avenue that I can either choose to draw closer to Jesus in or make it about my expectations. Right? One of the big things, my dad grew up playing organ and I... I can't tell you the difference in generations when it comes to the organ, right? I, I had a, someone from one generation tell me that that's part of what it sounds like to worship, and I agree and love that. Then another generation, Gen Z, said, I only associate organ with horror movies. <laughs> vast, vast difference, right? And one of the things that I respond is, I don't know anyone in my generation who knows how to play it, right? So in response to why does everyone play guitar? Well, the guitar is my generation's organ. Times really do shift and impact music and all of those things. And so when we are only locking ourselves, my, I have not, I'm I'm in rare form today. My favorite genre of music is death metal. Imagine if I came into worship and said, that's the music I want to hear. I refuse, I, will, I don't draw close to God unless it's death metal. Would you guys all stay here with me and worship? No! And I also love bluegrass, and I want to see a death metal bluegrass band come out. Do that, that would be awesome, right? But every generation is different. What if they just loved Taylor Swift and they wouldn't worship unless it sounded like Taylor Swift? Alex can actually do a pretty good Taylor Swift, so. But I, I belabor this point is because we can get so locked in into what we think church should be, what we believe worship should look like, that we don't allow our expectations to be challenged. My friends, the, if we want to be world changers, which I believe we all want to be world changers, Right? We can't be locked into our expectations of what the world should look like because then we can't work together because I as a white Idaho boy have a very different perspective of what the world should look like than someone who's not like me, right? We need to work together and that includes having our expectations challenged and I hope that that's what worship is for us Christians, that we come in with the expectation that Jesus is going to reshape our desires for the world around us. Let's look at this passage in Luke 24:13 through 35. Um, this is this story is only uh, brought to us by Luke, um, and it, it's a it's a beautiful one. It's a little bit longer, but it's it's beautiful. So um, let's let's look at this together. Luke 24:13 through 35. Follow along with me, in your Bibles or the words on the screen. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walking along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. I just feel like that's an indication that Jesus has a sense of humor. Like, hey guys, what's up? Are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know? What things? Tell me more. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But he had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. The Greek says, confounded us. Some of our women confounded us, their fellow disciples. They went to the tomb early in this morning while we were hidden and locked away, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, oh, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. The written word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I love how it was getting dark. They stayed. They urged Jesus. It's almost end of day. Come and stay with us. And as soon as they found out it was Jesus, it didn't matter to them that it was the dark of night. They returned back to Jerusalem with their hearts on fire for what Jesus had revealed to them in scriptures. Can I ask, when was the last time you felt like your heart was on fire? When you were reading scripture, <laughs> John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, that was his conversion experience. That's how he described it for himself. My heart was strangely warmed, and he was reading a commentary by Martin Luther on Romans. I just say, nerd. Like, if your heart's all set on fire by a commentary, right? But again, There's power there when we interpret it through the presence of Christ. And I think that's when we realize the Holy Spirit participates on a very physical level as well. When our hearts are set on fire by what we are hearing, we are inspired by what the love of God is compelling us to do. As with every biblical passage, this one is so full of symbolism. I'm sure you caught on some of those aspects as we are reading through that today. But for our purposes just for today, I want to zero in on just a few aspects. To set the stage, we must remember that this event, which is only depicted in Luke's gospel, takes place after the resurrection. They just said it's three days after all these events took place. And I always try to remember what it must have felt like for those disciples on that day. Like the two in this passage traveling down this road to have been with Jesus for years only to watch him taken, betrayed and denied and killed the way that he was. They not only lost their teacher and their friend, but in their minds, they had also lost a Messiah, or at least their hope that he may have been the one they were waiting for. Then they encounter the risen Jesus on the road, that they made the journey from Jerusalem and Jericho, but we read that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And they still don't recognize him even after Jesus beginning with Moses and all the prophets interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. They still don't recognize him even after Jesus explains the scriptures before them. And it was only after all this that they finally recognize him as he broke bread with them at the table. Just like he had done in that last supper with them, how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. As I read this passage, I asked, why didn't these two not recognize Jesus right away? What kept them from recognizing him? And then more importantly, I asked, what keeps us from recognizing Jesus too? I often think that we assume that if Jesus showed up right in front of us, we would know it was him right away. My friends, people who had been waiting for the Messiah for thousands of years didn't recognize the Son of God standing right in front of them. Who are we? And disciples who followed him for years didn't recognize what Jesus was saying about himself being the son of God. Matthew 25 is probably one of the most powerful chapters in Matthew's gospel. And in that, in Jesus separating the sheep from the goats, Jesus also points this out. He says, for I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. And what were the the sheep's response They said, when, right? When? They didn't say, oh, we knew that was you. (laughs) Jesus said, whatever you did for the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did for me. We get that same element in this road to Emmaus. He's a stranger on the road, and what did these two disciples do? Invited him in. They didn't know him from Adam. but um. They had no idea who this person was, and yet they still invited him in for lodging and a meal. They were literally serving Jesus unaware. So I think that's where our expectations first need to be challenged. I think we assume we would know Jesus right in front of us when sometimes we need to be ready, (laughs) We need to have our expectations reformed. I think one of the, the clearest lines in this scripture that helps to answer this question why didn't these two recognize Jesus is, is uh, verse 21. They said, We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. And I think this brings two things to mind for me right away. First, they are communicating how their hopes have been dashed. Luke tells us that their faces became downcast when Jesus asked, right? They are, they are incredibly hopeless and sad in this situation, their hopes had been dashed because Jesus had died. The Romans were still in charge. The poor still needed good news spoken to them. And the religious elites still had their way. And Jesus was gone. Could their dashed hopes be part of why they didn't recognize Jesus? I know that when I'm hopeless and when I've been in moments of deep despair and personal loss, what brought me comfort before wasn't even recognizable to me anymore. Anyone else been there? Even my most familiar relationships seemed to be so different and distant to me, like they couldn't bring the same comfort to me anymore, like they were in a fog. Hopelessness and despair can be really disorienting. Could this be why these disciples were experiencing not being able to recognize Jesus? Their despair over losing him prevented them from seeing him clearly. I think that's such an important aspect of this chapter is that we acknowledge those moments of deep despair and how disorienting they are. We also give others grace when they seem to be disoriented by their grief as well. The second thing it brings to mind is that they are communicating a very clear expectation. They had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. What does that mean? Right? There's a lot of meaning that can be packed in that one phrase, redeem Israel. By this expectation, it is clear that him dying on a Roman cross wasn't part of the plan for redeeming Israel, It wasn't clear what God was going to do if Jesus wasn't the Messiah to bring redemption in the way that they had hoped for. This expectation isn't just found here in Luke's gospel, but all throughout the gospels in the New Testament as well. The disciples' expectation of who they believe Jesus should be often made them incapable of seeing who Jesus actually was. Probably the most stark place we see this is when Jesus predicts his death for the third time and Peter rebukes him for even suggesting such a thing. Never, Lord, Peter said, this shall never happen to you, Matthew 16, 22. This is the rock upon which Jesus built his church, rebuking Jesus for even suggesting that he would die on a cross. And Jesus responded by telling him that he had human ways on his mind rather than the ways of God. Put another way, his expectations shaped how he saw Jesus rather than allow Jesus to shape his expectations. Some scholars also suggest that this was probably Judas's motivation for betraying Jesus. These scholars suggest that Judas betrayed Jesus not because he didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah, but precisely because he believed Jesus was the Messiah so much that he wanted to force Christ's hand by handing him over to the enemy. He wanted Jesus to call down his legions of angels, stop wasting time, and defeat the Romans already once and for all. And when this didn't happen, and he was handed over to be crucified, he took his own life in despair. And James and John certainly were not expecting Jesus to be crucified with other criminals when they requested to be on his right and on his left when he came into power. And Jesus responded, I love, there's two versions of the story. My favorite is when James and John's mommy came along to ask Jesus, can my sons be on your right and your left when you come into power? <laughs> and Jesus said, you, you still don't know what you're asking. Can you drink of the cup that I have been given? And James and John, the sons of thunder, yeah, of course we can. Because they were thinking right and left was vice president and secretary of defense when he took over the Roman throne, right? And redeemed Israel. That's what they were thinking. We're gonna redeem Israel the way Rome is trying to redeem the world for themselves. Violence, oppression, and overthrow. We wanna be on your right and left when you do that. (laughs) Not as criminals... Convicted an innocent death on a cross for the salvation of the world. Jesus was pursuing a different way of redemption. And yet the expectation of redemption that even the disciples had, who could see Jesus flesh and blood, had different expectations for the kind of Messiah he should be. Friends, this still preaches in our world today, (laughs) I don't know if you've noticed, but we have a lot of different versions of who Jesus should be in Christianity, right? Just look at the paintings. (laughs) Just look at the pictures online of how Jesus is depicted. Are they all the same peasant from Nazareth, riding a donkey, taking up a cross, Middle Eastern looking? (laughs) We don't all share the same expectations of Jesus. And Jesus is still asking us, are you expecting me to be me? Are you expecting me to be the version that you approve of, right? Even when all the disciples, this didn't even stop after the resurrection, my friends. This is a persistent expectation. Even when all the disciples were gathered around Jesus and he was ascending into heaven, there's real clear indication that he's the Son of God. Everything he said is true. They say to Jesus in Acts chapter 1 Lord, is this the time that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He's like, I'm ascending into heaven. And the disciples still don't get it. Disciples. Yeah, okay. Yeah, Alex, he just got it. Oh, man. This expectation shaped so much of that. And Jesus responded by saying, go wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit. Don't do anything. Maybe be quiet for a little while. Go sit and wait for the Holy Spirit to come. Not only was this a very clear expectation of Christ's disciples, the way they expected it to happen was very different than the way Jesus led them. I don't know if you noticed, but Jesus didn't build an army. (laughs) He didn't mount a rebellion against Rome. He didn't take an earthly throne to power. He called disciples, women, children, together and followed him. He mounted a rebellion against the forces of evil, injustice, and oppression by healing, forgiving, and liberating the poor. And he took a cross and poured out his love and power for all the world. That's a very different way of bringing redemption. Their expectations of him often made them incapable of seeing him for who he actually was. And this is often the road we walk as well, right? This is our journey too. Don't we Christians still do this today socially, politically, and theologically? Aren't we capable of doing this in our personal relationships as well? I remember what it was like being a young middle school student, being so infatuated with the idea of someone (laughs) than I was actually liking that person, right? I know we all know what it feels like to be more in love with the idea of something than the thing itself. How much does that hurt when reality collides with real life, (laughs) The same can be true in our faith. Are our expectations of Jesus in line with who Jesus actually is? This has always been such a compelling and convicting notion for me, to follow Jesus for years, know the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, even do great works in Christ's name, but still not recognize him or why he even came into the world. Probably the most stark picture of this comes from Matthew seven twenty one through 23, where it says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. So how can we... No. How can we be clear that our expectations are in line with the person of Christ Jesus? I don't know. We'll see you next week. No, I I remember reading those words and feeling deeply convicted, but also deeply scared. Like, I if someone's casting out demons in Christ's name, I'm going to assume they know Jesus pretty well. But Jesus adds a wrench in that whole thought process. I remember reading these words and being so struck by the thought of seeing Jesus in the flesh like the disciples did, witnessing his miracles, hearing his teachings, and being amazed by his authority, yet making the mistake of interpreting all these things through my biases and my expectations rather than allowing him to change me. It terrified me to think that I could allow my expectations to be so consuming that not even the son of God would be recognizable to me for who he was. And if even, not even Jesus could break apart my expectations, how can I expect to see my neighbor clearly or even myself? In that moment, I remember making this commitment and It's a hard one to keep, but I still try to strive for it every day to make the commitment to always be open enough to allow my expectations to be challenged because I wanted to follow Jesus, not my expectations of Jesus. I wanted to love my neighbor, not love my expectations of my neighbor. I wanted to be able to love myself, not the expectations of myself. This is why I am so convinced that the revival that Christianity needs is a revival of humility. There was the amen, right? (laughs) We need a revival of humility in our land. For only in humility do we allow our expectations to be challenged. Humility is taking time to form an opinion in a reactionary world. Humility is being committed to discovering nuance and complexity even while everyone else is dealing in absolutes. Humility is refusing to reduce another person's humanity simply because they disagree with you. Humility is knowing there is so much we don't already know. Humility is being comfortable with being wrong. Because being wrong is an opportunity to grow more truthful. Humility is valuing others above ourselves, not looking to our own interests, but each of us to the interests of others, as Paul says. Someone once asked me a question that has stuck with me ever since. What do you want more than to be right? What do you want more in this life than to be right? My answer is this, I want to be truthful more than I want to be right. Because if I am only working towards being right about everything, I'll just see everything as a debate and dismiss things that contradict my rightness. (laughs) No matter how truthful they may actually be. But if I desire to be truthful, I will be comfortable with being wrong because being wrong is an opportunity to grow and become more truthful, to deepen my understanding and to move forward more wisely. But if I'm just concerned about being right, I will never allow myself to be challenged. As someone who wanted to just be right for the majority of my life... (laughs) I finally noticed how little I was actually listening to other people when my concern was to be right. Trying to shift my desire to be more truthful, I find that I listen and want to learn a lot more now than I ever have before, especially over things that matter. I think this is why our passage ends the way that it does today. How are we to recognize Jesus beyond our expectations? Well, the disciples finally recognized Jesus when? In the breaking, the blessing, and the sharing of the bread and the cup. The meal where he said, this is my body broken for you, and this is my blood poured out for you. A meal that whenever we Christians partake of it, we are doing so in remembrance of Jesus. And what are we remembering We are remembering the love that led him to the world, that led him to the cross, that brought about resurrection in the world, the love that led him to the poor and the vulnerable, the love that led him to us. It is only through this love that we will understand the scriptures, that we will understand God's way of redemption and salvation, that we will ever understand the gospel message of Christ. The heart of this for me is for those of us who seek to be disciples of Jesus, that we allow his love to shape our expectations rather than allow our expectations to shape what we think about his love. Only through that love can we see the redeeming, healing, reconciling power of the resurrection. Only through that love can we hold on to the hope that death will not have the last word over us. My friends, when you have that love, when you have that hope, when you have that faith, it changes everything, even our expectations. So my prayer for us today is that our expectations will be rooted in that love that we recognize Jesus. Here are some reflection steps for you this week. I only have two for you today because I feel like they're heavy. (laughs) What do you want more than to be right? Write that down somewhere. Put it on the fridge or the mirror when you wake up in the morning. Ask yourself this question. Ponder it this week. Don't answer right away. What do you want more than to be right? So we have a lot of things that we are very passionate about, but do you want to be right in them the most or what do you want the most out of those things? Contemplate that question this week. And lastly, what are your expectations of those you love? Let me clarify those you love those you love are not just your spouse, your close friends, your family. Those who you love include you. (laughs) includes Jesus as well. And your expectations shape those relationships, right? And misrooted relationships, when they're not rooted in trust and love, they can really bring harm, especially to ourselves and to other people. So, Clarify what your expectations are. And I guarantee every single time I've written down my expectations of Rebecca, my parents, my brother, um, Alex, every time I write down expectations, I find ones that I can cut. And I'm like, you know what? I've been operating under this expectation and I don't even agree with it. But you can get into a habit of those expectations. That's why it's so important to be aware of them because then we won't recognize it if we're not aware of our expectations. So make a list. What are your expectations? Maybe pick one relationship. Maybe it's just your relationship with yourself, your relationship with Jesus, or someone that you really care about. Write out a list of your expectations and maybe see which ones, you know what, I no longer need that anymore. Or maybe you need to have a conversation with that loved one. We are going to participate in the table. My friends, we just read about Jesus being recognized in the breaking of bread and the blessing of the cup. And that's why I feel like this blessed Eucharist is such a holy symbol for us Christians. Because when you come and you receive the bread, you dip it in the cup, you are remembering that love that was made and spilled out for you and the world. My desire as you come today is that you'd recognize Jesus in your coming and you're being nourished by these things and that we would be recognized as followers of Jesus in this world. By what we recognize in the breaking of bread and the drinking of the cup
0: thanks for listening today here at cathedral of the rockies our motto is all means all and we strive to truly live this out you can help be a part of this by giving to us online here at the amity campus specifically we feed the hungry through our very active food pantry also We are building up our children and youth programs so that we can serve all families in our area and then also provide safe spaces for them to just be themselves. All means all. Any amount given is an investment that allows us to continue to serve those who join us in person and online and serve the growing neighborhoods around our church building. There is a link in the show notes where you can give online. Thanks again for joining us today and have a great rest of your day.